let me help set the stage for uh, where we're at in terms historically and doing so from Scripture. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is talking to the disciples and uh, they're outside of the temple and they're sort of observing everything that's happening in the temple and uh, they observe the beauty of the temple. And then Jesus says, this thing is going to be torn down, right? It's, it's going to go away. It's going to be destroyed. And they want to know when this is going to happen. And so he gives them that prophecy about how all of uh, Jerusalem is going to be judged. The temple is going to be judged. Israel as a nation is going to be judged. But he says, before this, before any of that happens, there's going to be some things that occur. And so in Luke chapter 21, in verse 12, we have this. Before all of this, he says, that's all of the destruction to come. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you. They uh, is highlighted there because we need to know who they is. Who's, who's the adversary in this particular passage, right? So who are they? Before this, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for who? For my name's sake, okay? Now, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and I will give you wisdom. And none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict it. Okay, so that's Jesus talking about what will happen or what will come, what will occur uh, for his name. And the adversaries there are highlighted. The people of the synagogues, the governors, the kings, and in in the prisons that would have been run by Rome. So we have sort of an arrayed set of enemies. But uh, Jesus says, you're going to be a a witness to me for me, for my name. But don't worry about what it is that you'll say. I I will fill your mouth with what it is that you need to speak. Don't worry about it beforehand. Don't meditate on it. And so in Acts chapter 6, uh, we see that Stephen is one uh, who is full of grace and power, it says. Full of grace and power in verse 8. And he's doing great signs and wonders among the people. And then in verse 9, it says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. Remember, this is uh, those who were maybe slaves or former slaves. And um, were part of Stephen's synagogue and the synagogue of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia. Uh, that's an important one because Cilicia is the capital of Tarsus and uh, Saul hails from Tarsus. And so we, we get the idea here that those who Stephen is contending with are um, some important key figures who come up later. And so um, Stephen is talking to these people. He's witnessing in the synagogues and they rise up against him just as, Je- as, just as Jesus predicted they would. And then in verse 10, it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with or by which he was speaking. Now that's an important uh, word, right? So a couple things here. So that's Acts chapter 6. Effectively, um, not, not, not in total fulfillment, but fulfilling what it is that Jesus said in John 21, which is that they're going to do this. They're going to throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to drag you before kings and governors, and you have to answer for, for being um, faithful to my name. But don't worry about what it is that you'll say, because I'll fill you with wisdom. I'll fill you with words. And, uh, and what it is that I will say through you will not be able to have an answer. And that's exactly what occurs here. It's really important that we understand that what it says here is that Stephen is speaking and they're not able to resist the spirit through whom or by whom he's speaking. Not like, um, it's not like an extra skill that he added on. Now he has the spirit speech and he can speak uh, on his own accord. It's, it's the spirit that's speaking through him. And so this is all bringing to uh, fullness uh, and introducing what Jesus predicted uh, would happen in the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter one, verse eight. And um, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and through the uh, whole world. I will, uh, uh, I will make you my witnesses. But he says, but not until a certain thing happens. What was that certain thing that needed to happen for them to be his witnesses? The Holy Spirit had to come. So don't, don't go until I clothe you with power and then, and then you can be my witnesses. And so it's important that we understand what a witness is and what a witness does. So a witness... Uh, in the Greek, the word is, is martyr. And so when we hear the word martyr, we immediately think of someone who what? Who's died for the cause. And uh, that, that becomes the case for those who are witnesses who won't recant a specific kind of testimony, right? Which is that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, so a witness is somebody, though, who has experience, specific kind of experience and, and knowledge that can establish the truth or the credibility of something, right? That's just a generic 
that doesn't have anything specific to do with Christianity. This is just a witness in general. A witness is someone who has experience and knowledge that can establish the truth or the credibility of something. Witnesses are called all over the place for all kinds of reasons. Uh, I asked earlier if you'd been a, you know, a witness in a court case. Uh, you may not feel like you've ever been a witness to anything important like that, but if you've ever been to a, wit- uh, a wedding, you've been a witness, right? So usually the protocol is we're gathered here in the sight of God and these witnesses, right? Because what you're doing is you're being a witness to the act of these two coming together in covenant uh, relationship before God. And so you have stood as a witness for someone. So a witness and their testimony can either make an enemy or a friend of something, right? And it can establish the truth or go against the truth of something, depending on the quality or the character or the believability of that witness and what it is that they're saying. And so we're going to see that sort of come to a head this morning. We'll be in Acts um, 7, and we're going to work through verses 51 through uh, 57 this morning. And so um, what, uh, what I want to jog your memory for is uh, sort of a generic definition real quick of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is empowering those uh, that are being witnesses to do exactly what it is that God has called them to do. So the Holy Spirit has got spiritual presence with us and in us. And then the idea of presence carries with it a lot of weight and a lot of importance. And so um, we, we, we need to remember that um, without the Holy Spirit, our, our testimony and our witness is, is um, it's useless, okay? So um, one, one, real quick, one more. In John chapter 15, uh, as Jesus is um, promising what's going to happen, I want you to see the necessity of the Holy Spirit for witnessing. So in John chapter 15, it says this. When the Helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit himself bears witness to the credibility of Jesus himself. Okay? And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So being with him from the beginning was one of the qualifications of being an apostle. We sorted all that out at the beginning of Acts. And it says, so he will bear witness about me and you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And then he goes on in the beginning of chapter 16 to say, I have said all of these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. They're going to think that they're doing something for God by putting out those who are testifying to God's work. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Did I not? I didn't switch slides. I apologize. So there it is. Because they have not known the Father and, nor me. So in Acts chapter 7, where uh, we're picking up this morning, uh, it records Stephen being a witness. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, just as Jesus had foretold, he's offering a testimony about Jesus and all the work that's been accomplished. And he even winds back further through the history of Israel. But his testimony is not, had, was not a testimony of himself. They didn't call Stephen before the council and accuse him of things. And then he said, well, let me tell you what I actually said. Or let me tell you what I actually meant by that. Or he didn't point to anything in his own life about the reality of what he said being true. It was not a testimony or a defense of himself. Instead, he, he is a test, he's, a, he's a witness for God and he's a, te, he's a witness for Christ. And that's the content of his testimony. To God, for God, and to Christ, for Christ. And he's doing all this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, The rub of the situation is that God has worked wonder after wonder after wonder and promise after promise. He's kept and he's revealed all of his glory and his purposes finally through the work of Jesus Christ. And he's continuing to work now by his Holy Spirit. And um, the problem is that Israel as a nation, as God's chosen people, have not represented God faithfully. And they've not responded to God faithfully. And they've not acted faithfully in uh, in any case. And so it's not Stephen's actions or his words that bring about their guilt, it's their own actions and their own words and their own history that indict them. And so with that being sort of the the setting for the morning, let's pray and then um, we'll get to the text and uh, see what God would challenge us in this morning through his word. Okay? Father, we pray this morning that uh, you would help us to understand your word. Father, I ask that uh, you would... um, 
make your Holy Spirit a witness to us of your truth and that you would raise us up then accordingly to be um, witnesses for Christ, that we would be a gospel light in the world and that we would understand this morning the importance of knowing what it is that we do and what you've called us to and um, why you do it and how you do it. So, Father, I ask that um, as you promised that you would give us um, the ability to see and hear and know you through your word um, by what you give us. So, in your spirit, would you equip us with what we need, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are soft to receive how you'd speak this morning. Father, I pray that you keep me from air and uh, that you would just um, lay the path that we would walk clearly uh, before you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, here's the deal. The true, um, the true nature of, of the situation of Israel and the true tra- tragedy of what is occurring is that... Um, for all of the glory and the fervor and everything that's, that's there within the nation of Israel and in Jerusalem and in the temple, um, it, it's, it's totally bankrupt of the actual thing it was meant to, to be. There was no substance in it, right? The, the system had replaced what the system was supposed to um, pr- provide or point to. So they had um, held in such high esteem and practiced with such great reverence and fervor um, the the system of religion that it had replaced the actual relationship that it was supposed to bring the Israelites into. And so Stephen's on trial and he's accused of blasphemy of four things. You remember what those are? Probably not, so I'll tell them to you, right? So he's accused of blaspheming Moses, God, the law, and the holy place, okay? Okay. And uh, really, the, the, the funny thing about it, if you look at the order of the things that are presented, what he's accused of, the emphasis is on Moses. Moses was revered. He's, he's the deliverer of Israel. He's the one that brought the law. He had the designs for the tabernacle. He met face-to-face, if you will, with God. He is, he's, he's revered and awed. And he's given credit for many things as much as or more than Abraham. And he was a ruler in that sense. And so he was, he's kind of... Um, their, their first order of, of offending was on the point of Moses. It's actually funny that at the, it's sort of towards the end of the list that they're like, oh yeah, and God too, right? And you, and you blaspheme God and we're upset about that. They're really mad about Moses, the law, or the customs that have been handed down, and um, the temple, and then oh yeah, God too. And so um, what they've done is they've elevated or, or venerated these things to the point of um, replacing God himself, right? So, so Moses... He's really important. The law is really important. Uh, the, the, the temple's really important. So they had put those things as the things they were supposed to observe and the things they're supposed to hold fast to and missed the point that they were all supposed to help them know who God is, right? So this is what's confirmed in what I just read from you in John 15. Before um, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, he tells them the Holy Spirit's coming and he says, the reason why they don't see is because they don't know me and they don't know the Father, right? So there it is. They don't have no, they don't know Father, and they don't know me. Knowing is a relational word, not an academic one. Let me say that again, right? So what Jesus actually says is the problem is what they missed is that they don't know the Father and they don't know me. And what he doesn't mean is he doesn't know of me or he doesn't know of the Father, right? As in those, the academic sense of it's in my brain that I've heard of it before. He means they don't know me in relationship. And so um, me, you can be a good religious rule follower and law keeper, law keeper, and you could be a knowledgeable scholar and able to argue through the Bible, which is exactly the case. That's what we see in the religious leadership of Israel. We had people that knew how to fastidiously execute all that the law said, and they knew all of the genealogy and what entitled them to, and they had great reverence for the temple and all of the, all of the little inkling little tiny things about all of the minuscule nature of it, and yet they miss the substance of it. And so you can, stole, you, can, you can know things, and you can do things, but totally be void of the relationship. And um, that's important. Unfortunately, this is a condition that wasn't just for the Jews. There are plenty of good, clean-living, religious-practicing people, and there are many, many people who like the political implications and the moral do-goodisms, do-goodisms of Christianity, of God's laws, and they're even raised with stories of the Bible, but they're Christians in name only. And that's exactly what the Jews had become. They were Israelites. They belonged to God in name only, in outward exterior appearances only. Just as Jesus said in John about the Jews, he confirms that this will also be a problem for us. What he said about them, they don't know the Father and they don't know me. 
And that's the problem. He's, he says that's, that, that's not just a problem for the past. It's a problem now and it's a problem ongoing. He, he, he says this if you read what his words are in Revelation. His rebuke in Matthew to those who say, look, we, we did many great things in your name. Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not uh, cast out demons in your name? Do we not do all of these things? And what's Jesus' response to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. He doesn't say you didn't know about me and you didn't do things in my name. He says, I didn't know you. There was no relationship with there. So depart from me. I never knew you. And so this brings up the reality of faith being a key component of what it means to know God. Faith being a key, now it sounds like pretty rudimentary, but faith here means something of the substance of what you do with what you know or what you, or what, why you're acting the way that you are. So here's the deal. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay? Without faith, is it possible to please God? So knowing right things without faith cannot save you. Knowing the whole law and all the rules and knowing that Jesus is Lord, knowing that he died on the cross, all of that cannot save you void of the faith. You can do all of the right things. You can follow all the right ways. You can avoid all the wrong things. Without faith, that cannot save you. Right? Depart from me because I never knew you. That is the key component. It's the knowing So what happens is we become blinded to this truth and we become blind to it if our commitment is focused on something other than the person, the relational aspect, knowing God through the person of Christ. When we're focused on a system or our trust is in following the system, this actually leads to hating God and believing that you're defending God because you're defending the system, which is exactly what we see the Jews doing. We, we, we love God because he gave us this system that we understand and we can follow the system and we know how to work the system. And, and so that becomes so elevated that they miss the point that God's not involved in the system. The system's for us, not for him. And so um, you can relate something uh, to this. Maybe if you've ever played um, like some, a complex board game with a child that's just below the age the board game is recommended for, Right? It's like, it gave you the, they give you the, and there's lots of rules and like maybe they get the rules and maybe they don't. And so you're playing and maybe they cheat on accident and you usually don't come down hard on them and go, you can't do that. And here's all the rules and you're terrible and wipe the board off, right? That's not usually what you do. You kind of have grace on and you're like, oh, it's okay. Cause you don't really care at that point about holding fast to the rules, right? But if you're like a nitpicker rule follower and the, and the rules must stand, you would just condemn and just crush the, the, the child because they're not following all the rules. It's blinding to follow the rules. It's, it's, it makes you miss the point of what's happening. It caused the Jews even to betray and murder God's representatives, whose purpose it was to warn and draw and testify and prophesy towards the, to what, what God is doing and who Jesus is. And so what happens is they murdered the, those that were pointing forward and they murdered Jesus himself. And what they told themselves is we're doing this for God. We're doing it because they're, th- because they're threatening the system. These people are, are, are bringing down um, uh, what it is that God has put in place. And so um, they're, they're the rule breakers. And so the, the roles are reversed. And so this is also what Jesus prophesied would happen. Thinking they're serving me, thinking they're doing this in God's name, they're going to draw you uh, out. They're going to throw you uh, out of the synagogues. They're going to put you in prisons. They're even going to kill you. And they're going to say, we're doing this in service to God. That's why. Because they believed that the system was so important that it couldn't be threatened. Okay, all that is to say, now in verse 51 of chapter 7, we'll pick it up with Stephen's testimony to Israel. So 7, Acts 7, verse 51. Here it is. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always, always is an important word, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Um, He's saying, you do now and you have previously and you will in the future. Resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered, who you, re- you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Okay. So um, that's verse 51 through 53 of chapter 7. He starts out saying, you, you, you are stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. And uh, so, so we need to 
understand why, why does he make this rebuke in the way that it is? And what is the content of the rebuke? So all that came before this, all of Stephen's testimony and throughout all of chapter seven has been, remember the course in the history of Israel. And what he's said is not just, not just led by the spirit, not just his verbal testimony, but all of the history has been the testimony of the Holy Spirit working. And he says, all of that you've resisted. Why? Because you have uncircumcised heart and ears. So circumcision was the physical sign of adhering to God's covenant. It was a way of belonging to God, but it wasn't circumcised flesh that actually made you belong to God. It was a sign of the covenant. It was not the covenant itself. And this is what what, what they missed and what we miss. Okay, it was a sign of belonging to the covenant, but just cutting the flesh cannot fix what's spiritually wrong with you. It was, it was saying, I, I adhere to it, I belong to God, but then that was still needed to be executed by following the law in faith. That's why, um, that's, where, that's where they missed it and just thought, well, it's just by following the law. So it was merely a sign of obedience and a sign of faith in the covenant that was made. And so you can be circumcised and not belong. You could be circumcised and not belong to God. It just is a cut in the flesh and mean nothing. Just like you can take communion and be baptized today and not belong. Those two are signs of the covenant, right? You can be dipped in water and words can be pronounced over you and make zero difference in you actually belonging to God, right? It's, it's, it's what I told you, the, the, the key agent of faith being the operative thing. It's just an outward symbol of your belonging to the covenant. The same thing as you can take this bread and this, and this juice later and drink it and pronounce things, but it does not make you actually belong. These are signs. Do you see that? Okay. So circumcision was just a sign and it does not matter if you have circumcision, if you disobey the law. And it doesn't matter if you obey the law without circumcision. What Paul says in Romans is this, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Okay, so he says, it doesn't matter if it's in the flesh or not, nor is circumcision outward and physical or only physical. In verse 29, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is uh, not from man, but from God. So here's Paul saying this. Look, it, it doesn't matter if you're cut in the flesh or not. It doesn't matter if you follow the law or not. What matters is that you're spiritually circumcised of the heart. This is what God has always been after. What was prophesied all along in the new covenant, I will, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and I will circumcise your hearts. This is the promise that was always coming. In Romans chapter eight, verse nine says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the necessity of the Holy Spirit being your belonging to God is one and the same as being circumcised. That's, that's how it happens. That's what happens. The real accomplished work of God of faith is a heart circumcision. Let me say that again. The real accomplished work of God in your life is faith because he circumcised your heart. That's, that's what happens spiritually. Something only the Spirit can accomplish. The result is that no one has to say to you, no God. And when they say no God, it doesn't mean no of God. What does it mean? It means know him as a relational aspect. I know him. That's Jeremiah chapter 31. This is in the Old Testament looking forward. Jeremiah is prophetically speaking about what will happen. In, verse, uh, in chapter 31, I'll, I'll read you verses 33 and 34. This is the covenant a new covenant that will be made. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. That's the knowing. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. We have a relational knowing there. And uh, in in 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. That won't have to happen anymore because it's already in our hearts. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, excuse me, iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. So here it is. This is what um, Stephen's condemned of the people. Your problem is you can't hear, and you can't see, and you can't perceive, and you don't know God because you have this uncircumcised heart, and you have a stiff neck. And so you're not responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. The problem of an uncircumcised heart and ears in this case is you cannot perceive truth. You cannot know what's actually there. You can't perceive what's actually below the surface. So Moses, uh, who uh, Stephen is quoted during his testimony, looked forward to a time when this wouldn't be a problem. Moses himself had looked forward and he said, look, 
um, there's one who's coming after me, a prophet who's greater, and it's to him you should listen to. That's the one that you need to obey. And Jesus was that greater prophet. He was the word of God himself. And here, here's Stephen saying, look, you, you can't hear because your ears are uncircumcised. They're not opened to what it is that God wants to do. So in Deuteronomy, which is Moses again speaking, 36, I'm sort of reiterating the same point, but I want you to get the fullness of it. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He'll do it. Who's, who's fixing your heart? God is. God's the one that will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will obey all the laws so that you'll be perfect in my sight so that you can have your own righteousness? No. He says, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. And that's an important piece because that's where we get hung up. We think that God has circumcised our heart so then we can obey the law, which is just another form of works righteousness which is not what God ever intended. The law was to point us to the fact that we cannot do enough. We don't get righteousness through the law. It's in faith that we were, they were to keep it. And the same thing for us. So he says, uh, you guys have these uncircumcised heart and ears. You can't hear and you're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit and you've murdered and killed everyone who's ever been brought before you that has testified to this very thing. And so um, one of those being uh, John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was one of those that they had murdered just recently before they had killed Christ in the crucifixion. And he's one who is called a witness. And so I think it's important today that we make the connection between what a witness is doing and what we are doing as witnesses. Not just what the disciples or the apostles were called to as witnesses. And so just real briefly, I want to walk you through how John's called, what he's called to, and that we might see something of the calling in our lives to be witnesses. So in John chapter 1, this is Um, Okay, so Apostle John writes the Gospel of John that we're reading, uh, but he's referring here to John the Baptizer, okay? So John the Baptist, the the forerunner of Christ. So in the beginning of his Gospel, uh, he's talking about uh, John the Baptist here. And so in verse 6, he says, there was a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. Okay, so importantly, uh, he was was one who was designated and he's commissioned and he's sent just like... um, Stephen was, and just like the apostles were, and just like you and I are. You are sent ones. And it says in verse 7 that he came as a witness, to bear witness to the light that all might, excuse me, that all might believe through him. Okay? That all might believe through him, but he, excuse me, but he was not the light. Okay? Importantly, he was not the light, but he bore witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I think I read two lines twice. Let me one more time say that clearly. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. But he was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Okay? So uh, there's, there's a very important distinction being made. And uh, John himself is called a light, but he himself is not the light. He's bearing witness to the light or about the light. So there's a connection there, but uh, we've got to keep those separated for an important uh, reason and distinction. And then uh, John later in the chapter of, uh, in verse 32 says, so John bore witness. How did he do that? He said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness to the Son of God. Okay? So all that John was called to do was to confirm what he'd been told was going to be true. He didn't add to it. He didn't need to make anything up. He didn't have to try and cajole or work the the system. He just said what was true. He was called to bear witness and he did that by saying, look, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove and it rested on him. I didn't know that that was him. I was told beforehand that the one on whom that happened to, that was the one. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. That's what I'm bearing witness to. So all he does is report his testimony of what he knows to be true. Makes sense. He doesn't expand his purview of what it is that he's supposed to do. So witnessing is simply this. It's to give full and credible testimony. Full and credible testimony. And John is doing just that. You tell all that you know, but you tell all that you know. And what's true? 
So John is a witness to the light. And we're told that because he's a witness to the light, that other, others will come to believe through his witness. Not believe on John. They're not going to have to believe in John. They don't even have to believe he's a prophet. But through his testimony, through his testimony, others will come to believe. That's what John, uh, the apostle, says, right? So this happens through the giving of a testimony and a faithful witness. And John is a witness to or of the light. Verse 7 um, all might believe through him. The through him is really important. In uh, Romans chapter 10, you will be familiar by the time I get to the end of this, says this. This is a quote from Isaiah. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Okay? Okay. So how is it that other people will believe through someone's testimony? Well, they'll believe through their testimony because they're giving the word. Well, how can they hear the word? Well, somebody has to say the word. Well, why will they say the word? Because they've been sent to say the word. Does it make sense? Just as it was walked through, John was sent and he was given a task to give testimony to what it is that he saw and he, and he gave that testimony faithfully. And so Romans makes the connection for us about how people will believe through our words. It's the same thing that Jesus says when he prays his high priestly prayer. He prays for the, dis the disciples that are actually there with him. And he says, but I don't pray for these only, but I pray for those who will come to believe through their word. So that's you and me, right? And everybody who believes through our word. So there's an ongoing sense. So God has determined, listen, to save other people by using his words, his and ours, to bear witness to the truth to save others for his glory. So God is determined to use people. That's you and me, regular human beings, right? And words, his words and ours to bear witness to and for the truth. Why? To save others by his power and for his glory. This is, if you want to say it this way, the, the means and the tools and the system that God has put in place. He's using regular human beings empowered by his spirit, speaking his words, but our voice and our words to bring other people to faith. That's what witnessing is. So in, uh, now I look back in chapter 7. Let's continue with the testimony of what Stephen's saying. You, you guys are uncircumcised. You can't hear. And this is the problem. And in verse 54, he says, When they, that's the Sanhedrin, and all who were gathered there, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, full of the, the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here's the deal about any witness, any kind of witnessing is it's not a guarantee. You're not guaranteed success. It's not, if you do this, then everybody will respond favorably. We can see that is the case. Not everyone who hears will hear, and not everyone who sees will see. Not everyone who hears will hear, and not everyone who sees will see. Why? Well, we're given two reasons why that's the case in 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains simply like this. Um, in, so, to, to, uh, to some people... When they have religious devotion, it says when, when they hear the, he's making a, a, a big metaphor. So let me just make it really simple. He says religious devotion blinds their eyes. He says they hear the, the, the law of Moses read and it's like a veil over their face. It says the gospel is veiled to them. They can't, they can't see the truth of it. And why can't they see the truth? Because the law is like obscuring their vision of what's true. So he simply says this, sometimes religious devotion gets in the way, which is the first thing I started with. Right? You can be so enamored and revere the system so much and hold so fast to the laws or hold so fast to the, the knowledge that you miss the truth behind it. So this is the gospel's veiled to those people. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And then in the next chapter, he says, also sometimes when the gospel's preached, the God of this world, that's Satan, blinds the minds of those who can't believe. So what is that? Well, that's, the, that's being enamored with the things of this world. That's being enamored with sin. And so sometimes the promise and the fulfillment of sin obscures the truth of the gospel. So not everybody that sees can see the beauty of the gospel. Not everybody hears, hears the voice of God. 
Instead, they hear it and it sounds terrible or it looks terrible. And so they reject it. And that's exactly what's happened here in the case of Stephen. This is only something that then is remedied by the Spirit. The veil is only taken away by the Lord. And the Lord is spirit. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. You can just write it down. It says over and over the same thing. They cannot perceive without spiritual eyes being opened to behold the glory. And they cannot behold anything to, unless their ears are open to hear the word of God. And they're given a heart to receive what it is that God is saying. The Holy Spirit is not just the one who empowers us to witness, who calls us to witness. He's the one who is required that makes our witness effective. Okay? So I have a weird way of wording this and I don't think of a better way. The Holy Spirit work is operating and it's necessary both ways. It's needed for you to go and it's needed for that to be effective. They can't hear what you have to say without the Spirit's help and you won't go without the Spirit's help. It's needed both ways, if you will, right? So God is effectively building the church through a Holy Spirit-filled people and through Holy Spirit-led testimony to witness to Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who opens eyes and ears and who circumcises hearts and who gives faith. It's, it's needed on both ends. And so you know why he does that? So that God gets all the glory. So that even the faith to believe is not yours. And so that's what he said. So this is true now, and it was true prophetically in the past. It is the Holy Spirit who gave all of Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit who uttered every prophecy. And anyone who spoke by truth. It's Jesus who is full of the Holy Spirit who speaks the word. It's Jesus himself who's the incarnate word. So everything that exists as Old Testament Scripture that pointed forward, that was testifying to a God that they needed to have faith in, all of that too is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? <laughs> you should. In Zechariah chapter 4, when they're going to rebuild the temple under Nehemiah, they're talking about rebuilding the temple. And we have this famous verse. We love this verse, but you need to get the context of it. Not by power, not by, my, my, by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. By the spirit, this thing will be accomplished. That's said in the context of the building of God's residence, where his, where his spirit will rest, where his glory will be. God is building a spiritual temple and a spiritual household using people filled with his words and his power. The result is that there's being a temple being built up that grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Okay? So there's your church theology for the morning. So here it is in verse 52, the dividing line of faith is always a point of controversy. It has to, it has to, conf it has to confront your heart reality. You have a heart of stone and it has to be confronted with a heart of flesh. The gospel is the confrontation of where, what, who, whatever. What is my faith in? Is it in me or is it in God? The gospel is not a certain scripted set of words that you can repeat to somebody. Let me say that again because I, I think we missed that. The gospel is not like a script that you can just read to somebody. All true calls to faith must confront a heart reality. The question is, you or God? That's at the fundamental base of a call to faith. Self-righteousness or God's grace? Will you go it on your own, answer for yourself, or will you rest in another? That's effectively what's happening here. It's self-righteousness or righteous trust in another. A call to faith must confront who we are. It challenges our fundamental disposition that a life is lived for me, by me, in me, or you can die that, that life that was living for self and you can live it for Christ. The truth is not the truth unless it's the full truth and it confronts that, uh, that place in our hearts. And it, and it can't confront that place in anyone's heart unless it's actually in front of them. Does that make sense? So we, we kind of hold that back. We, we, the gospel presentation is almost always on the beneficial side. Do you want to not burn in hell forever? Yeah, I have a solution for you, right? Without getting to the fundamental confrontation that's below that. Well, why is that a problem for you? You have to confront the, the, the reality of the heart and that doesn't happen unless you put that truth in front of someone. Right now, you're, you're gonna answer for yourself on your own. Well, why is that a problem? Well, because you may have lived an okay life, but you didn't live a perfect life, right? And so you can confront the heart reality of, of them living for themselves or trusting in another. So at its core, the gospel comes down to a decision between faith in me or in God. 
Am I justified by what I do, how I act, what I know, what I don't know, what I don't do, or will I trust in another? That's essentially the bottom line of the whole thing. So you give the full testimony as a credible witness, and that will bring them to the opportunity of faith. And then if the question is not whether or not you did a good enough job. The, real, the only question is whether or not you're being a faithful witness. It's not about how, how great you are. It's, it's being a faithful witness, and that's the, the title for this morning. A faithful witness. And here's what it comes down to. Scripture compares Jesus to a light, right? He's, Jesus was the light that John was testifying about. He came into the world. He came into the darkness and says the, the world did not love him. They didn't know him, and so they rejected him. But, but Christ is this light, but we're also told that the gospel is a light. The gospel is a light that shines. So here we are. We are supposed to be witnesses, like John was, to the light. And so the, 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 the simple question and that I want to give you an answer to is how do you do that? What does that look like? What does that actually mean to be a faithful witness and give testimony to the light? How do you give testimony to the light without being a light yourself? Well, you do that by making it evident, by drawing attention to it. You witness to it by unobscuring it, not covering it up, not making it not accessible, not making it not visible. You make it clear, right? So Jesus simply said it like this, who lights a lamp and sticks it under a basket, right? There's the simple conclusion. How, how could you give testimony to a light? Well, you just put it somewhere where it can be seen. You make it evident. You remove all the boundaries so that people can see the light. Do you make, you see in some sense of what's happening here? Who lights a lamp and puts it under a basket? This coincides with Jesus' rebuke and revelation. He says, if you guys don't repent and return to me, I'll remove your lampstand. And, uh, and so the, the idea here is this, that um, Jesus will not afford the, the luxury of you putting up uh, no light. Like you're, you're, you're not giving um, testimony or credibility to anything. You're just... Uh, an, an empty lampstand or it's obscured or something or an empty lamp itself and it's obscured. And he says, I'll, I'll remove that, um, that place of honor or that place of witness from you. So what makes up someone's testimony? What makes a witness a witness? Well, word and deed. It's not just what you say, but what you do. We are not the light. Thank goodness. We are not the light. So we don't have to worry about whether or not we are good enough light. We simply point people to the one who is a true light. A witness that draws attention to themselves is not being a faithful witness. A witness that has to go, look, let me, let me tell you how great I am so that now you'll believe me. That's, that's not a good witness. Somebody that gets on the stand, I mean, you guys remember the OJ trial, hopefully. Most of you remember the OJ trial. And uh, what was the guy's name? Cato Kalin or whatever. Yeah, he just guy, this random guy who was staying at the house and he like interjects himself for his own benefit. Make sense? For his own gain. That's not a good witness. He's not helpful in that sense. And so we, we can't do the same thing. It's not for to draw attention to ourselves. A witness that only um, wants attention for themselves or interjects themselves. A witness who is only partially truthful. Right? Who's only, who doesn't give the full counsel. Who doesn't say the whole thing. Or who exaggerates the counsel. Or exaggerates the testimony. That too is being an unfaithful witness or a witness that misrepresents their qualifications or who hides his true affiliations is unfaithful. There's different kinds of witnesses you can be, right? You can be called to be an eyewitness. This is something I saw. That's what, that's what John did. I was there. Spirit came down. That's, that's the guy. That's the anointed one. That's all he testified to. You can give a character witness and a character witness isn't about your character. It's your vouching for the character of another, Right? But what always happens when somebody calls a witness is they begin to attack the character of that witness or the qualifications of that witness. And trust me, if somebody attacked your qualifications and your character, they would be successful. I know that because they'd be successful against me too and everybody else who's ever lived. There's so many things they'd point to to say, that can't be true because of, I see all the stuff in your life, right? But you're not giving testimony to your life. You're not the light. Praise the Lord. Okay? I'm not the light. Unfaithful witnesses are worthless because they give testimony about themselves. They interject themselves. It's about them. It's not about you. It's about another. 
The when, what, who, how, what makes up your credibility as a witness is the one you're witnessing to. You are meant to draw attention to a light. I see this like a stained glass window, okay? A stained glass window. The window isn't a light source in itself, is it? You don't, it doesn't have a light source in itself, but there could be a, a, a very good shining light source behind it, the sun indeed. And the sun is like the truth, that's God. He's there and he shines through this window and the window in this case can be Christ in his work, okay? And you could look at that window and say, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Look at this, how the sun breaks through those panes of glass and it just paints this picture. It's glorious. It's magnificent. Have you ever seen anything like it? It changes your life, okay? Stick with the metaphor. <laughs> it changes your life, right? You don't have to try to remove the pane of glass and the light source and carry it around and try to shine it for people. All you need to do is point and say, there's an amazing thing over there. Just go look at it. And, and that's all you're called to do, believe it or not. You can testify about what you saw and you can say that it was the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen and somebody else could go up and look at it and think it's the ugliest thing they've ever seen. And that's true. But you're not called to be the pane of glass and you're definitely not the light source. The, the gospel will, will divide. That's, that's essentially what happens. It's, it's just pointing, you're just a, a, a tour guide, if you will, pointing to the beautiful pane of glass. When we witness to Christ, God makes his appeal through us. You are a faithful witness when you say what you've seen and where it can be found. And the adage goes, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You, you don't have to try and bring the bread. You don't have to try and qualify the bread. You don't have to do anything other than say, there's a place to get bread. There's a beautiful thing you can behold over there. Just go look and see if you might see the beauty and the glory in it. And that's what being a faithful witness is. I want to walk you through this real quick in uh, John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, um, Jesus is um, meeting with the woman at the well in Samaria. And uh, if you know the story, um, he, he meets this woman at a well. He, they have this dialogue, and we kind of get an inside story about she's not a very great woman. And he, he's talking to her back and forth about what it is um, that she needs or what she wants. And so Jesus actually turns the tables on her, and he asks her for a drink of water right? And she's, she's like, well, how is it that you're asking me, a woman, you know, and I'm of Samaria to give you a drink? And Jesus, again, flips the tables one more time and says, if you knew who was asking you about this and asking for a drink, you would ask me for a drink instead. So he goes on to talk to her about this living water. And so she says, I need this. I want this, I want this water. I need this living water. And, um, in verse 13 of chapter 4, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, just, I just want you to track the whole, the whole process and the whole story. <laughs> Jesus says, If I give you this thing to drink, this living water, what's going to happen is that you too will become a spring of living water for other people. And so... Um, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. And then in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. So they go back and forth. And because the woman says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You have no husband. You have five husbands. And the one that the man that you're with now is not your husband. The woman said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming uh, and is now here when not on this mountain or in Jerusalem will, we, will there be worship. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called to Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am he who speaks to you. So the disciples come back in verse 27. He's talking with the woman. It says she leaves her jar of water and she runs back into the town. That's an important detail. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging, hey, eat. I, Jesus says, I don't, I don't need your food. I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. Verse 35 says, 
Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving the wages of gathering fruit for eternal life. And the sower and the reaper may rejoice together for the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And then in verse 39, why did Jesus say this? And what happened with the woman? Why'd she run away? And what about the water and the living water, etc., etc.? In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, her witness, her martus. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he said, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Did you see the story? <laughs> She's like, I need a drink of water. You, you don't need a drink of water. You need, you need healing. You need the living water. I need that living water. Well, I'm, I'm the one who gives it. And if you have it, then from you will flow streams of living water. And you would think that that meant that she needed to go save everyone. But it doesn't. She just runs back in the town and says, you guys know what kind of person I was. And this guy told me everything I ever did wrong. Can you believe that? He must be the Lord. They're amazed. They come out to see, is this true? Is this true? All she does is point to the window. And they come. And it's not because of what she said, confirmed by their own words. It's not because of what she said, but now we believe because we see, because we know. That's the story. <laughs> that filled with the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit, your witness can be successful, but not because you need to point to yourself, but just because you're offering a drink that was offered to you and you can tell people where to get the water. I'll end on this verse and I'll pray and we'll do communion. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for his sake. We're just serving him. We're just going, we're just saying, it's not about us, it's about him. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. He, he, he shed abroad what we did not have, what we did not understand, what our eyes were blind to see and our ears too stupid and dumb to hear. He broke through. And now the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shows in the face of Christ Jesus.